You're listening to the RUF at Western Carolina University podcast. RUF is a campus ministry that exists to reach students for Christ and to equip them to serve Christ, His church, and His world. For more information, follow us on Instagram. We're at RUFATWCU or look us up online at www.ruf.org. Thanks for listening. We're going to be in uh, Genesis chapter 15 tonight, uh, wrapping up our series on Genesis 1 through 12. Uh, You're like, Andrew, you're cheating. Uh, This isn't in 1 through 12. This is 15. Hopefully it'll make sense as we go through it. But this continues the story of Abraham. Uh, We talked last week about the the great promises that God makes to Abraham. Uh, He says, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to bless you so that you will be a blessing. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. But there's an issue that's just hinted at in Genesis 12 uh, that becomes more and more prevalent the further you read into Genesis. Uh, The issue is that Abram is old. Uh, According to the passage last week in Genesis 12, we're told that he was 75 when the promises were made to him, that he would be a great nation. And even worse than that, he's not just old, he's childless. And it's hard for someone to become the father of a nation when they aren't even a father of one person. Uh, And this problem comes up in our passage tonight. God addresses these questions and problems uh, and more. So follow along with me as I read Genesis chapter 15. Uh, Couldn't quite fit it all on the page, but as you'll hear, what you don't have is a list of countries that you've never heard of. So it's fine. Just follow along. I'll try and pronounce them at the end. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you've given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man will not, shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven. Number the stars if you're able to number them. And he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But Abram said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? God said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. Behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But... I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, 
the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Let's pray, and we'll talk about what that means. Father, we thank you for your word and the truth it reveals to us about who you are, who we are, and what you've done to bring us back to yourself. I pray that as we look at this passage uh, in particular and uh, kind of look back over Genesis so far, uh, that you would help us to see the great love that you have for us in your son Christ. Do this, we pray, for we ask it in his name. Amen. Uh, so this passage starts out with uh, Abram confused and curious about God's promises, right? These two big questions. How is a childless man going to be the father of a great nation? And how is a nation without a home, without a land, without a place going to bless the world? And you see it in the questions that he asks, right? He petitions God and he says, like, what good is anything that you would give me if I don't have a son to pass it on to, if I don't have a family to bless with it? And then a a few verses later in verse uh, 8, Abram says, Oh Lord God, how am I to know that this land will belong to my family? There's this like theme in Abraham's life. There's this theme in so many people's lives in the Old Testament of like God making great promises and us being like, yeah, but how can we know? Right? We see this in Moses when God calls him out of the burning bush to go back to Pharaoh and say, let my people go. And Moses is like, I, I don't talk good. Like, th- pick somebody else. We see it with Gideon when God calls him and says, I'm going to use you to, to rescue my people. And Gideon is like hiding in a hole in the ground. And he's looking around for like who God must actually be talking to. What about you? What promises of God either seem too good to be true or just like impossible to achieve? God has promised us a lot in his word. Right? Christ promises the disciples and us that he won't leave us or forsake us. He promises that if he, he goes to prepare a place, he'll come back to us. The one for me that I always seem like, are you sure, is the promise that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. Right? The older I get, the more I see areas in my life and in my heart that I need to grow. Right? Impatience and easy frustration and anger and desire for control and on and on and on. Uh, like we have a puppy And I get so irrationally angry at this animal that's not making choices, right? It's just acting on instinct. And yet it's so frustrating to me. And like, I I find myself getting almost angrier than I've ever been. And I'm like, I'm 37. I shouldn't get angry at an innocent puppy. But I do. And reading Screwtape Letters this semester has just opened my eyes afresh to all the different temptations and pettiness that goes on in my heart, and in my life. There's just so much work to be done on me, and God has the audacity to say, I began a good work in you, and I'll complete it, right? I'm going to get rid of all the sin in you someday, and it just seems impossible, and it sounds too good to be true. And at the core of Abraham's inquiries is just this deep and settled question, how do I know? How can I be sure? God, are you going to make good on your word? Is it real? Or is it all just in my head? And I wonder if you ever have questions like this. God, how do I know that this Christianity thing is real? Right? How can I be sure that, that I'm in, that I belong? Is it all real or is it just in my head? 
And it's so encouraging that God is not threatened by our doubts, right? We, we can see those doubts as scary and kind of avoid those questions and just go along as we always have, right? Doubt's not to be the norm for the Christian life, but, but when Abram raises these questions, or if you think to the Gospels, after Jesus has been raised from the dead and, and Thomas says he won't believe until he sees the scars in Jesus' hand and feels the wounds in his side, God doesn't kick him out. Jesus doesn't, like, remove Thomas from the apostles. No, in both cases, our God moves towards us in our questions and in our struggling. We strive to get to a place where we trust and believe. We don't want to live in doubt, but God is not scared of our doubts. He's not scared of our questions, but moves towards them, towards us in the midst of them. And he doesn't just leave us with a simple, like, just trust me, right? Like, just shove those doubts aside and trust me. He actually gives us something to lean on more than just words. Uh, Look back at the passage. In verse 8, Abraham asks this question, how can I know? Right? He says, oh, Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? And then we get some peculiar instructions, right? He tells Abram, go bring me a cow, a ram, and a female goat, and some birds, right? So Abram goes and finds them, and he brings them, and then they're killed and cut in half and arranged to make a sort of aisle or pathway. Like imagine if there was a dead bird here and a dead bird here and half a dead cow there and the other half is right there and like the goat's in the next row. Like it's weird, right? After all this is done, God causes Abram to fall asleep. And God speaks these words over him. Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that's not theirs and on and on. Right? And we say like, okay, what good is this to Abram? He's sleeping. Um, this is the picture of of a father leaning over their sleeping child and like whispering, I love you, right? Like they don't hear, but, but like that knowledge gets in you. It's that, that a, a father speaking words of blessing over someone who's beloved. But after these words are said, something even weirder happens. A smoking pot, so just picture like a, a bowl with smoke coming out of it, there's something on fire in it, and a torch appear and kind of like float down the middle of this aisle. And verse 18 summarizes what just happened. It says, on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. Um, All right, we're going to break this scene down a little bit. First, this word covenant. We don't use uh, that language a lot today. Uh, Maybe uh, you grew up in a a neighborhood with an HOA, and you might have had a neighborhood covenant, right? Take your Christmas decorations down by January don't paint your house bright pink, no loud parties after 10, that sort of thing. That's really more of a contract, right? Like just some rules for harmonious living. Uh, the best example we have today of what the Bible calls a covenant uh, is marriage. It's a relationship sealed with promises. And that's why marriage vows traditionally are not based on, they're not declarations of feeling, they're declarations of actions, right? They're not primarily about emotions, but dispositions. I will be faithful to you. I will be with you no matter the circumstances of our lives together. You don't just make these promises whenever you want to, right? There's a ceremony. There are representatives. There are are signs. There are are rings that go along with this covenant because it's a big deal. In the ancient Near East, where Abram is, uh, covenants would often be made between nations or tribes. Uh, A stronger nation would covenant with a weaker nation, 
And the weaker would promise some tribute of taxes or food or soldiers, and the stronger would promise protection. Right? They say, if anybody attacks you, we'll act like they've attacked us, and we'll drop the hammer on them. Right? And they would seal this covenant, this promise, this relationship bound by rules with a ceremony. Leaders of the nation would take several animals, kill them, cut them in half, and make a sort of aisle. And then the leaders would together, kind of like it's just weird, bizarro marriage ceremony, walk the aisle together between the animal pieces. And here's why they would do that. In passing through the pieces as they made these promises, the leaders of the nations were saying, may this be done to me if I fail to keep these promises. Right? Like, if I don't make good on my word here, you have permission to tear me in half, right? to break me into. It was this intense sign of intentionality, of, of the gravity of the promises and the seriousness of the bond. And in verse 17, that, like, that's what's happening. Right? It's this ancient covenant ceremony where this greater power, God, is covenanting with a weaker power, right, Abram, and saying, I'm going to bless you in all of these different ways. Right? Because we have in verse 17 this, this smoking fire pot and a flaming torch, which in the Old Testament are often used to symbolize the presence of God. If you think of Israel wandering through the desert at the end of the book of Exodus and through the next couple books of the Bible, they're led during the day by this pillar of cloud or smoke, and they're led at night by this pillar of fire. It symbolizes the presence of God. These two things appear, and the presence of God passes through the pieces, which to ancient readers would have raised eyebrows, because what we're witnessing is that covenant ceremony, But in the covenant ceremony, the representatives are supposed to walk through the pieces together. But here we have God entering into a covenant with Abram, and he's the only one that passes through. Right? Abram is asleep. God has put Abram into this state of rest and taken the initiative on himself to institute this relationship. And here's what's happening. Here's what God is saying. Right? That the burden to fulfill these promises is totally on him. Right? Abram's sleep is a picture of his inability to achieve the promises of God. God will do it. He will achieve what he has purposed, and he does not need us. He doesn't need, even need us to be awake for it to happen. God will do it. He who promised is faithful. But there can be a question here for us, right? This is Abram. This is 4,000 years ago, give or take. He's been promised a land and a family, but what on earth does that have to do with us? Well, there can be this misconception about the way that we read and, and sometimes use the Old Testament. Uh, sometimes we approach the Old Testament as if it, like, almost like we approach Greek mythology. Uh, like, it's, it's all in the same world, and it's all, like, loosely connected, but it's really just a bunch of different episodic stories about Zeus and Hercules over here and Sisyphus over here and Narcissus over here and like all these different like morality tales almost, right? We, we can even think that God is, is working differently with people in different eras, that we just get these kind of disconnected snapshots, right? God tried the, the cultural mandate with Adam and Eve. He tried it again with Noah, but that didn't, that didn't work out, right? We, we got the flood and we got Babel, 
Right? So now instead, God's going to try working through this nation and give Abram a people and a place, but they end up as slaves. So in a few years, he'll try like the monarchy with David. And, and, and we can almost think about the Old Testament as if God is, is trying things out until he figures out something that works in Jesus. And now that we've got Jesus like, okay, like this one worked, let's go with salvation by grace. We can dispose of the Old Testament, except for like these cute illustrations. I don't think that's what's going on, if you couldn't tell. I I think instead of reading the Old Testament like Greek mythology, uh, loosely connected stories that teach moral lessons, uh, we should read it like Harry Potter, uh, one connected story that grows in the telling. Uh, because if, if, like, one of the great things about the Harry Potter series is that as you get to the end, you get all these things from the beginning that are so much bigger than you thought they were, right? I don't know if everybody's read it. You should have by now. I'm not going to spoil things, but I'm going to spoil a little bit of book two, because book two centers around Tom Riddle's diary, right? And, like, the possession of Jenny Weasley by Voldemort through this diary, and at the end of the book, it's destroyed, right? Jenny's freed, and we go on to Azkaban and Patronuses in book three, okay? But then in book seven, the diary's back, and it's like more significant than we thought. And that happens with so many things in the series, right? Harry's wand and Ollivander's curiosity in book one, the invisibility cloak, and like so many artifacts and characters and locations and family relationships get brought back into the story and expanded, and their significance gets understood in a fuller way. And that's what's going on here in the Bible, right? Like, this is where J.K. Rowling gets the idea of, like, let me give a full story, but, like, have it be part of a bigger story as well. And this, this story actually starts back in Genesis 3.15, with God's promise that the child of the woman will come and crush the head of the serpent. And we get a little bit more of the story in Genesis 9, Right, the end of the Noah story, where God promises Noah and us that he will preserve the world so that a snake crusher can come. We get a little bit more of the story in Genesis 12 and 15, that with the call of Abram, uh, that God promises Abram and us that the snake crusher will come from this family. Right, if you keep reading the story of the Bible, we get a little bit more of the story in Exodus 19 through 24, where God gives Israel the Ten Commandments. And begins to outline the sacrificial system where God promises Moses and us that he will accept sacrifice as a substitute for our sin. And if you keep reading, you get to King David in 2 Samuel 7 where God makes a covenant with him and promises that a son of yours will be on the throne forever. God promises David and us that there will be one to fight for us, to lead us. If you keep going, you get to the prophets men like Jeremiah and Ezekiel, where God promises even more that the law won't be written on tablets of stone, but on our hearts, that cold, dead, unrepentant hearts will be renewed and able to live again. You see, rather than being separate, disconnected promises, different ways of dealing with people, this is the unfolding of what we call God's covenant of grace, his promise that he will save his people, that he will fix it, that he will not leave us consigned to death in Adam, but he will come graciously and bring us back to himself. And the New Testament talks about Jesus in all of these categories. Right? The New Testament talks about Jesus as the son of David, right? the king riding in on a donkey, who conquers not by destroying his enemies, but by making them his friends. Jesus is the new Moses who brings the law of God and sacrifices himself as a substitute for us. 
Jesus bears the flood of God's wrath against our sin. He's wiped out so that we might be saved through his blood. He's the one who restores and heals, who raises people from the dead and breathes new life into dead hearts. And he's the snake crusher, the one promised, who in defeating sin and death and Satan is himself wounded, even as he destroys the enemy. When we are born, we are children of Abraham, represented by him before God, standing in judgment for the guilt that we inherit from him and all of our own sin that we contribute. But when we're made alive with Christ, united to him, he becomes our new representative. He becomes the one who stands in our place, who passes through the pieces and says, may this be done to me if I don't rescue you. And that's what was done to him so that he might rescue us. And we inherit from him all the blessings and goodness and righteousness that he has accomplished. This last section on your handout is called, Where Are You Looking? And here's where this view of the Old Testament, this this understanding of who Jesus is and what he's done and fulfillment of all of these promises really comes home for us. It's so easy for us to become weighed down in our sin. If we take an honest look at ourselves, we see all kinds of remaining work that needs to be done. Lust and greed and envy and pettiness and pride, judgmentalism, arrogance, resentment, deceit, and on and on and on. And, And we can start to think, how could God accept one like me? Maybe we get weighed down in our doubts. Again, we wonder if any of this is real or if it's all just wishful thinking. We wonder maybe if we're really saved, doubting our own salvation, right? How can I know that I'm a Christian? We think, how could God put up with someone so weak in their faith? We get weighed down in our circumstances. We look at what's going on in our life, what's going on in the lives of the people that we love, and we wonder if God's paying attention or if he cares. Or we start to think that any good that comes into our lives is going to have to come from our hard work, our efforts, our striving. And we start to think, I've got to convince God to be on my side. I need to prove that I'm worthy of his blessing. And the common thread in all of those is that we're looking at ourselves. So often we base our assessment of the Christian life, either it's truthfulness or it's goodness or it's effectiveness, it's reality. We base it on how we feel that we're doing. And we think we're the barometer of whether or not God is faithful. Our experience of the Christian life is based on us. And we're looking at ourselves. But if any of that is you, if you're weighed down by sin or doubt or or life in this broken world, I want you to hear this. You have a representative. Jesus Christ, God made man, stands in your place. The true and better Adam, the snake crusher, the king, the prophet, the sacrifice, the redeemer. And in him, you are fully seen warts and all, and in him you are fully accepted, warts and all. And if you let that truth sink in, right, if you let all the weight of who he is, right, these weight of of expectations and promise that they're all fulfilled in this one man, if you let that sink in, who he is and what he's done, it will free you. You will be free to confess your sin because you'll know that it's already paid for. So we can confess our sin to God and we can confess our sins against one another, knowing that we're secure in our representative. We'll be free to fight our sin, 
knowing that we don't fight this battle alone, but we have one who intends to bring us along to perfection. We'll be free to admit doubts and questions because we know that they don't disqualify us from his love. And we'll be free to come in prayer, in praise, in petition, bringing our circumstances before a father who has given us Jesus. And if he's given us his own son, how will he not also with him give us all things? Here's what Paul says about this this comparison between Jesus and Adam in Romans chapter 5. This is starting in verse 15. But the free gift, that grace, is not like the trespass, Adam's sin. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. The free gift, this grace, is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following Adam's sin brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brings justification, that perfect acceptance. For if because of one man's sin, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass, as one sin led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, Adam's sin, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, Jesus, the many will be made righteous. In another place he says, in Adam all have died, but in Christ all shall be made alive. In Christ you have been forgiven. If you're in Christ, you have been made righteous. If you're not a Christian tonight, this is the invitation. Come to the one who makes all things new. If you are a believer tonight, this is the invitation. Look to your representative, the better Adam, the better Moses, the better Noah, the better everything. Rest in him. Look to him for your confidence, for your hope, for your acceptance. And come to the one who makes all things new. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you for your word and the truth it reveals to us about your great love for us in Christ Jesus. We thank you that we have such a Savior who fulfills all these hopes and promises of the Old Testament and fulfills them in ways that nobody expected that are better and more glorious and brings us into a kingdom that is starting small and is growing inexorably as you, through your Spirit, work it in our hearts. Father, as we look to Jesus, would you free us? Free us to confess our sin, confess our need for grace, not just from you, but from one another. Free us to give that grace to one another. Free us to admit and wrestle with our doubts and our questions, to do it in conversation with you and with your people. Free us, Father, to praise you, to petition you in prayer, to ask for what we need, knowing that you're a Father who delights to give good gifts to your children. We thank you, Father, for the way that... uh, this, this thousands-year-old story uh, of this childless man in the ancient Near East points us to Jesus. I pray that you would help us to see him as more beautiful and more believable day by day. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.